Hello, and welcome to Shrink Wrapped, a podcast created specifically for psychiatrists to provide you with bite-sized insight from leaders in your field. My name is Ross Thomason. I'm a co-founder of Thalamus, a company creating bespoke software for psychiatrists. Our goal is to create the digital tools that you need to deliver the best possible care for your patients. This week, my co-founder Arden speaks with Professor Andrew McIntosh. Andrew is at the forefront of research into depression and genomics. He's a professor with the Division of Psychiatry at Edinburgh University, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatry, and a chair of Generation Scotland Expert Working Group for Psychiatric Disorders. Andrew is also this year's host for the MQ Mental Health Data Science Meet being held in Edinburgh on the 9th of September. Andrew and Arden discuss why he was first interested in psychiatry and in turn why he decided to focus on research. We also speak about the ethics associated with gathering and sharing data that researchers require to better understand the causes and cures of mental ill health. We hope you enjoy listening. So good morning, Andrew. Thank you very much uh, for joining ShrinkMap this morning and for giving us your time. Thanks very much for inviting me. No worries. To kick off, if I may, what was it that first drew you to psychiatry? Well, I think the, the roots of my interest in psychiatry started when I was uh, fairly young and I used to go to my grandma's house in Aberdeen. My grandma was a ward sister in the Royal Colin Hill Hospital in Aberdeen, the largest psychiatric hospital there. And she often spoke about the sorts of problems that the patients faced and uh, the effects of treatments, both positive and negative. And gradually, I think that was the seed that first started my interest in psychiatry. And then later, I suppose, when I was coming up to A-levels at school and, and then at medical school, I became really fascinated by how little we know about why some people develop psychiatric illness and, and why others don't, who, who apparently come from quite similar backgrounds and have similar family histories. So I, I was motivated first, probably, by the wish to discover something about their causes. Then as a medical student, I was lucky enough to really enjoy clinical work. Uh, and that's continued throughout my, my the period of research also. The contact with patients I found uh, really, really interesting and important as a context for the research that I, that I also conduct. Do you split your time between clinical and research, or are you mainly research these days? I'm mostly research, but I'm still clinically active. I do clinical work one day a week. Uh, I've just finished a weekend on call at the Royal Edinburgh Hospital also, so I still work clinical activities into my weekly programme. So on the research side, so you're a researcher, it sounds like, four out of five days. What's What's your research focus at the moment? What are you working on? So the main thing I focus on, I actually do several projects, but they all focus on depression and resilience. So I'm, I'm really interested in why people uh, become depressed and why others are resilient in the face of adversity. And uh, most of my research focuses on families, on following people over time, and then using large data sets. So I particularly use genetics in my research because I think it gives us particular clues to cause that other types of research don't. In what way do you use the genetics? Is it a predictive way or is it about going retrospective? How does that feed into the into your research? Well, I think that there are many there are many types of research, all of which are, are very valuable. But often when you find an association between a risk factor and a psychiatric disorder like depression, it's it's sometimes not easy to tell what was caused and what was effect. So 
people with depression have you know recent life events which are which are troubling uh, but it's difficult to know whether that's been caused by the depression or it, or it's a cause of the of the of low mood so genetics doesn't suffer from that same limitation so you're basically born with the same genetics that you have now they're fixed from birth and they you carry them forward so if you find an association between a genetic risk factor and depression then the genetics is is a very likely cause and you can't say that about almost any other risk factor so it, this is really useful in some quite unexpected ways because most people think genetics is just uh, you know it's telling you about the DNA within a cell but it tells you so much more than that it it also tells you about some of the environmental factors that um that cause depression also so for example you can measure in, with somebody's genes their propensity to smoke how overweight they're likely to be their height their and many other characteristics and and by inspecting the results from your genetic studies of depression you can begin to identify the environmental factors which which i think is a really valuable and, and unanticipated benefit of genetic research that you wouldn't normally be immediately aware of if you were to if you were to read about it so have you built a multidisciplinary team to investigate this what does your team look like yes that that's right so i i work with a team of people that do genetics people who do large data analysis uh, data administrators psychiatrists psychologists and then in the broader team i work with social scientists with people working in other countries so it's a very broad spectrum of people that I work with one of the the smaller groups of people in 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 my research group are psychiatrists that actually needs to be quite a broad spread of discipline beyond medical and psychological expertise in order to do research effectively and to extract more information from the from the data than you would otherwise be able to do so we talked about data quite a bit already how where is your data coming from where where and what does this data look like so most of the data i work on at the moment comes from a study called generation scotland and from uk biobank so those are the two uk studies i work on most closely i also lead a consortium with colleagues with catherine lewis at kings college and we we also work on data from from over 20 countries where people have consented to take part in studies of genetic studies of depression and they shared that data with us for for research so we we lead this consortium which is you know a partnership between many countries and many different investigators around the genetics of depression and is that so everybody in that has consented for their data to be used in this way so i assume therefore they they've already had a diagnosis of one form or another Yes that's right so all three of those studies that i mentioned here they're all studies where people have gone to see a researcher they filled in a consent form and then they provided data and uh, agreed to that data being reused for future research does that give you the full picture uh, no it it actually it misses some key details so one of the things we've done recently is to look at the effect of we look at people we we've looked at people who give consent to take research and then looked at the characteristics of people who have withdrawn their consent from a particular part of that research so for example in UK biobank we've looked at individuals who have agreed to participate and undergo genetic analyses but who have not provided data for research into mental health problems so th- this has provided us with the opportunity to look at what the differences are between people that participate in mental health research and people that don't 
And pe- people that don't participate in questionnaires about their mental health uh, are different from individuals who do in, in several key respects, uh, some of which are very relevant to the study of, of depression and other psychiatric disorders. And, and I think what, what this reveals is that people that take part in research studies generally are somewhat different to people that, that don't. They're more likely to have been in education for longer. They're more likely to, be, to have higher incomes. And they're, they're more likely to include people who are less disadvantaged. So, uh, so one, side, one side effect of this, unfortunately, is that consented research tends to include people or tends to exclude people who are perhaps at the greatest need. And so I, I think this is one area in future where, where data science can, can help us. But at the moment, we effectively exclude some of the people who are at greatest need from our research. Interesting. Do you think technology might have a role to play in, in doing that? What, what are the barriers to get, accessing that data? Is it, is it ethics? Is it technology? Is it uh, education? What are, what, are the, what are the barriers to, to getting your hands on, on the data that you need there? So I think there, there are several opportunities for improving the current situation, and you, you rightly highlight education and, and dissemination of information to, to the general public as being key areas where, where efforts should be made. I think that as soon as you have to approach people, especially if you have to approach people repeatedly for consent about individual studies and individual reuses of data, you effectively start to filter the individuals who participated down to a more and more enriched data set of people who are, who are not typical of individuals in the general population. So I think the challenge here is to find an ethical way of analysing data from whole populations that has the support of the public and has their, their broad consent. And that's been difficult up till now, although research is conducted on, on routinely collected data for the purposes of audit in the NHS, research conducted on whole populations is, is not typical for the point of view of, of the sorts of research that, that I do that has benefits for healthcare, but they're, they're much longer term benefits. They're not immediately apparent, if you like. Um, so specifically, what kind of data is it you're, you're interested in, people consenting to give it? Is this the genetic overlap with the Data, or is it symptomatic data, or is it what's the the key for your research? Well, so most people that are treated for depression, the the diagnosis of depression is recorded on their electronic health record, whether that be in hospital or through the GP, and accessing that data on a whole population level, it is possible, uh, and it is possible to do ethically, but it's not been done today on a large scale. So enabling people to consent to the release of that data is possible. There, there are a couple of initiatives that I think are really exciting at the moment. So the one I'm, uh, the one I'm most aware of in Scotland is called the SHARE database. So the SHARE database uh, allows people to sign up for their health data to be used in research at the point at which they attend an outpatient clinic for whatever reason, whether it be a psychiatric outpatient clinic or or it could be at their GP practice or wherever it is. And that means that their data can then be accessed for research. Not only that, one, one really exciting part of the shared database is that people can consent to have their routine blood samples diverted once they've been used for the clinical purposes. The excess sample that was collected, the excess sample of blood, can be diverted for use in future research. So this is just one 
possible method that we could access whole populations uh, where people provide consent on an individual basis, but it's been done at the point at which they've received healthcare. And so it can be done on almost the whole population who've, who've contact with their GP or with another health professional. Do you see, and there's been an explosion recently in the likes of mindfulness apps and the latest kid on the block is wearables and constant tracking. Do you see an opportunity for their data sets to feed into this? Yes, absolutely. I think those those two things you've just spoken about are ex- are extremely exciting. I think they're, they're first of all exciting as a, as a possible tool for clinical care. So the first thing you mentioned was mindfulness apps, and of course they have very nice user interfaces. They are they're publicly available, and if you like, it, it's a, a method of democratizing healthcare because they can be they can be available to the the whole population, whoever they've seen in clinical care. And people select them from a menu of possible options available to them. So I think that that method of delivering healthcare is extremely exciting. If if I could deliver healthcare from an app, from the point of clinical care in the outpatient clinic, then I think that could be very valuable. And and I think that's a, a really important area to explore in future. The second thing you mentioned was about the collection of data from apps. And and I think one of the limitations of psychiatry, one of the limitations of mental health care in general, is that we're often asking questions about people's past history. And that people's recall of what's happened to them in the past is coloured by their current mental state. So, for example, it's well known that people will forget about previous history, a previous history of depression, and that they're more likely to do this if they're currently well. And what that means is that you often don't get a very accurate picture of people's previous medical history, because when times are good, people sometimes forget some of the bad things that have happened to them in the past. And I think one of the advantages of using apps and using other means of data collection, there are many, but one potential advantage is that if you actually collect data from people at the time they're experiencing the symptoms, rather than relying in clinic on their recall of data, the recall of information, and events that happened many years ago, you're likely to get more accurate information. And, and so I think this is a great potential to enhance both treatments, but, but also research in that we are likely to obtain uh, data obtained at the time people are experiencing their symptoms rather than recalling them many years later. Are you aware of any data sets that have come out of a mindfulness app? So would you use them differently to information, that, sorry, data that's coming out of shared database, for example? So I'm not, I'm not aware of any data that's come out of specifically mindfulness apps, although I think that would be, you know, that would be a really, a really valuable and, and interesting thing to explore. I'm aware that the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies program in England has, uh, whilst at the same time as improving access to psychological therapies, has also obtained a very rich and, and valuable data set. And, and I, don't, I don't see any reason why apps such as mindfulness apps could not also obtain with adequate consent and governance, information that's also very valuable from those platforms also. Uh, I think there are there are a number of possibilities at the moment for collection of data from the individual at the point of care and at the, at the point at which they're experiencing both the treatment and the symptoms that have led to them seeking that treatment. And that those things could really revolutionise both healthcare and, and, and research because they can be available on larger numbers and provide high-quality data that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Where does all this data lead? 
so we, 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 you, you've got some at the moment. You want more. I've never met an academic that doesn't want more data. But the uh, where does it where does it go? You know, what what are your objectives for this? Are you looking at treatments? Are you looking at predictors? Are you looking at mitigators? What's what's your perfect outcome from your current research programs? Well, so it's not just that I'm looking for more data. I would like more representative data, data that's more representative of the people who are at greatest need. So at the moment, when we look at uh, population-based volunteer studies, we're getting, as I say, very highly educated, uh, predominantly white people who are, are socially advantaged and people who are not those in the greatest need. So just to just to say again, I think it's not just about more data, it's about better data and data obtained at the, at the point at which people are experiencing the symptoms. So where, where, what's the overall objective? Well, the overall objective is to reduce the considerable burden associated with depression in this country and worldwide. And to do that, I think we need, we, we do need all the things that, you, that you've mentioned. We need a way of mitigating the risk factors that lead to depression. And that means we have to understand the risk factors that lead to depression in the first place and spot the disorder in adolescence and early adulthood before the disorder is fully manifest. And in order to do that, we, of course, we need very large data sets. So I think there's no doubt about that. We need very large data sets with rich clinical information. And we also need the tools that help us assess whether something is a cause or a consequence of the depression. And, and for that, I think genetics also has a specific role to play. The genetics provides us with those causal anchors, if you like, that enable us to, to test whether smoking, whether recent life events or whether other factors are associated with depression and a variety of other men mental health problems. So I think it's, I think it's all of the things you, that you mentioned. And for me, I think uh, one of the most important questions to get to those better treatments and better outcomes is to understand more clearly the risk factors and the mechanisms that cause mental health problems, particularly depression, in the first place. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So we share uh, MQ in common. We have we we both have, have MQ mental health in common. That's where we where we met. Their next data science meeting is up in Edinburgh, I believe, and I think the college is also hosting their congress up in Edinburgh uh, next year as well. So it seems like Edinburgh is the place to be in psychiatry for the next twelve months at least. How important do you think the data science meetings are in bringing the the profession together to discuss data and data sets and, and what's happening? I think the MQ Data Science Group is a terrific initiative. I think it's, as I think we've already discussed, that data is becoming available in greater quantities, at greater velocity, in, in greater depth, all of the time. And at the same time as technology is advancing, both in terms of the data collection platforms where we enter data into to Google or into Amazon, and, we're present, and that data is collected and curated over time, and in terms of the tools that we can use to analyze ever large data sets and link information across countries. So I think it's, it, it's a very rapidly moving field, and it poses uh, both practical challenges, ethical challenges, and conceptual, uh, and conceptual challenges also. So I think having a group of people that together are staying abreast of those developments and working out ways in which those advantages can be leveraged to the benefit of patients and to the benefit of people who suffer from mental health problems is absolutely vital. And I think MQ are well ahead of the curve on this. 
I think it's a stated intention of most funders in the UK and overseas that they that they wish to take it, take advantage of the benefits provided by the availability of uh, in inverted commas big data. And in order to do that, I think it's important that we have a presence, that we are well organised, and that we can figure out how how best to take advantage of those opportunities as they arise. So. I think for, for all of the reasons mentioned, I think it's really vital that we have a data science group. And I think MQ has been uh, has has spotted an important opportunity and taken advantage of it. You touched a couple of times on ethical concerns and the efficacy of using this data. Are there any areas that you think we are perhaps oversensitive on or perhaps don't focus on enough? What are your key ethical considerations for the use of this type of data? So. I think that I think the important thing here is that I think whatever concerns the public have over their data, they are legitimate concerns. I think it's important that that research is conducted first and foremost with the public and patients in mind, and not with the needs of researchers. So I, I think whatever data is is used or leveraged, that that has to come first. Privacy and security and public concern needs to be at the very forefront of our minds. That being said, I think sometimes we are only too acutely aware of all of the privacy issues and some of the controversies caused by uh, news stories such as that surrounding Cambridge and Analytica, for example, and we forget the opportunities that this data provides us with. I think, in fact, the concerns about data aren't shared by everybody. I think most people who use services such as Google and Amazon will appreciate that the you know, that the ability to link data sets together provides services and opportunities for people that improve their daily lives. But I think establishing where those boundaries lie for healthcare is going to require us to engage with the public and us to co-create programmes of research with the public that take into account their views and which don't move faster than we have the the licence to do. So, for example, much of the research that we conduct here is conducted with with a public panel and through social media and to engagement, to large public engagement events with the public. We're able to ascertain their opinions and views and design our studies with them in mind from the outset. And I think we're going to have to do that more and more in the field of data science to ensure that we have public permission going forward. So lastly from me, what technology or piece of research or evolution in the profession are you most excited about over the next two or three years? So I'm really interested in technology and in software development and user interfaces that improve people's inclusion in research. As I say, as I I think probably has come across already, I'm I'm really enthusiastic about including the people who are at greatest need. And in order to do this, I think we need to make it as simple as possible for people to become involved in research and to understand what we're doing. So I think the ability to collect uh, information through apps, through wearables, through questionnaires and at the point of care, I think will increase the inclusion of people from the more socially disadvantaged groups, perhaps more effectively than anything else I can I can really think of. And so I think that those technologies, technologies that are able to collect this data whilst maintaining the integrity of the information and the anonymity and privacy of the people who provide their data for research, I think is, is absolutely vital. And it's those developments, I think, that are most excited about and, and enthusiastic about. Excellent. So for a young doc, perhaps not even at core training yet, um, or sorry, specialist training, if they're interested in heading down the research 
path, what advice might you give them? Oh, gosh. I uh, think it's, uh, it's hard to think of an answer to that on the hoof, but I think, I think if you're interested in research, I think it's important to be, to be driven by a fundamental interest and fascination with the subject. So, for example, I, I think the thing that, that has kept me going through periods of uncertainty in my career has been the fact that I find psychological phenomena and psychiatric illness just, uh, just really, really interesting and sort of driven by knowledge to understand those conditions better. I think the other thing that to encourage people who might want to undertake a research career in psychiatry is the fact that, that our disorders are, are the most burdensome of all conditions in medicine. But I think, first and foremost, the, the large burden of ill health associated with psychiatry more than justifies the career in the, in the topic, as opposed to careers elsewhere in, in medicine or in other fields. I think another thing I'd like to say that's come up in conversations recently, which may, may seem slightly random, is that that burden is shared worldwide. It's not just a function of living in, in quite comfortable and affluent societies in the West that my, my research has recently taken me to Malawi, where we're doing research on on depression and on postpartum postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis to a lesser extent. And these issues affect people regardless of wealth or geography. And and being able to impact on that burden to even a small degree is is a privilege and is is exciting and interesting. Excellent. So for all the research you've done and all the research you've participated in and observed and managed, what's your go-to for de-stressing and unwinding at the end of a particularly research-intensive day? (laughs) So I cycle to unwind. I I, I was trying to think previously about exactly what it is I do to de-stress or to get away from it all, and I I read a little. I I read around my subject as well as some non-fiction, but I cycle to and from work almost every day almost regardless of the weather, although that's sometimes uh, a challenge. I also cycle at weekends for pleasure, but it's, it's possible even in, uh, you know, it's, it, the proportion of days where it's actually raining on the way to or from work, it's actually, it's not that high. You can, you, you kind of, I think we often build up a mental picture of, of it being rainy and windy in Scotland all the time, but, but most of the days it isn't, and it's actually quite pleasant to cycle to and from work. It helps you unwind at the end of a busy day. And I also I also watch programs about cycling too. I'm quite keen on this part of my life. Perfect. You mentioned you're reading. Are you reading anything interesting at the moment? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm actually reading a book about cycling called Overlander, which is a book about cycling across Scotland. And perhaps more related to my work, I've been reading a book called The Life Project recently, which by Helen Pearson. It's a book about the UK birth cohorts and how they came about and were developed and about the, the value for research. So my reading is a mixture of hobby related and, and also some, uh, some nonfiction, which, is, which, which you could say is also work related too. Excellent. Andrew, thank you ever so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Some fascinating insights there and, and much to think about in terms of access to data and, and the right data, as you suggest, and how we engage with the public and how we manage the permissions for the use of that data and ethical considerations around it. So I really, I really appreciate you spending the time. Thank you very much for inviting me to do the podcast. I've, I've enjoyed it very much.